Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of writers who sit around, drink, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, it's me again, hosting solo with episode 94, an interview with Alexander Voynev. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Jeannie. How are you doing? Pretty good. Hey, listeners, Alex and I have known each other for about 17 years since we met on a mush. And after 2020, 17 years seems like at least a half century. We met on a Fading Sun science fiction-based mush, and Alex gave the best story in scenes. Flash forward many years, one of my hacky gals was saying that I had to read some gay romance military fiction by this guy named Alexander, and I died laughing. I'm like, oh, Alex, you're never going to (laughs) guess. So what have you been doing? Did you write much before we started, before you started mushing? Or did that launch your storytelling genius? Uh, genius. No, I think, I think it's, it was kind of, oh God, I, I, you know, when I was kind of uh, playing, you know, as, as a child, I was always making up stories while we were, you know, playing catch. So I was very much always trying to entertain like my, my playmates. And that kind of fairly seamlessly morphed into uh, running tabletop games. And then obviously when, when tabletop is kind of mush, mushing was the really the extension of then tabletop games. But at that point, I had already kind of started reading about how to build a story or writing my own stories. So it's, it's kind of, I've always been a storyteller and the medium, you know, whether it's a mush or a role-playing game, a traditional one or entertaining friends with a with story is, is kind of for me almost the same thing certainly satisfies the same brain circuits as it were. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased it was fun. Well, I can see that it's it's an extension of every little kid who's ever played the floor is made of lava. It's not just jumping from place to place. It's the floor is made of lava and we're on this alien world. And these are all this volcanic rock structure. And we're here because we're explorers. And I, I love that. I think you you advance the theory that writers really are just in touch with our childhood brains of what is the context around this thing that I'm doing? Oh, very much. Um, I think one of the, you know, ego wounds, if you want to be cutic about it, was when uh, my childhood friends kind of grew up and then were interested in like boys or you know, at that point, boys, but you now girls would have been the same thing. And I was I was just heartbroken because suddenly all my my stories and the imaginary worlds and characters, you know, they they didn't seem to matter to them anymore, but they mattered to me and I kind of kept them alive and I got to the point where where it was good enough to kind of reach a big bigger audience and maybe even get paid for it. So um yeah, it's 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 really a way of not murdering that 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 urge that that storytelling thing that we all have as as people, you know. So it was your progression from mushing and and interactive storytelling did you start on short stories or did you go directly into novels um i just i was just telling the the stories of characters that i kind of had in my head and it was very much slice of life i didn't really know how uh, how plot really works or even how to end a story but so luckily that's that's something you can learn and certainly when you write adventures you know the the people want closures you, you i mean there are people who run uh, games for 15 years or something, but kind of the reality is if, if you can kind of provide a closure or, you know, satisfying moment of, ah, yeah, you know, if, if you can kind of time that and get that just right, I, I really prefer that to open-ended uh, things these days. I can see that Gone. because of in episodic writing, the best ones have the long story arc that can carry you from season to season, but you still kind of need a little bit of a cherry on top at the end of every episode. Yeah. 
even if and I, and I like the closure I have I have real real trouble with series that run for 10 15 years because I mean who has that attention span I don't <laughs> I'm happy to get immersed for a few months but after that I start to kind of look around for other things I hear you I hear you is there a formula now this I have a question based on a blog you were writing is there a formula for romance and I mean I know that thrill and I love thrillers and I write you know the thriller genre as well but romance you mentioned there was a company that said oh that's not romance is it different if 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 you want to categorize something as romance and you're going to a publisher is is there are there rules is there a formula that you have to follow and does it vary by publisher Yes, but I'm really bad at it. So kind of um I'm I'm sometimes even struggling a little bit with categorizing myself as a romance writer because it used to be very much like I have I have queer characters and they they also have a love plot going but also other things. And um certainly about 10 years ago, you know, anything with with a love story with uh, you know two guys for example um would would be categorized as as romance, but in the past what oh, 7 5 years um really the the heteronormative classic category romance has has really shaped and changed my my genres so i can move from inside the genre to kind of hanging on by my fingernails and the idea is obviously you know you you want to have both characters as much as possible in the same room it always has to have a happy ending and i'm completely okay with that I mean that is literally the definition of of romance versus a love story where where you can you know kill people but I I try not to kill my main characters <laughs> because a I really like them and I be be think you know killing killing the gays is yeah you know, is 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 so a 1980s really so um yeah, yeah I, so I I like happy ending the happy ending is is definitely the one thing that absolutely has to has to happen as far as romances go I have been told I am too plotty there is too much character and too much plots and people really just want the relationship for me that's a little bit unsatisfying most, i think the most sometimes successful romances that i see uh, are very much in the category romance where the relationship is literally 90% of the book and that's fine i mean they they're really cool they they're very popular no judgment no no but on the other hand i've been convincing my husband had read a couple books and he came to me and he's like What is this? Why won't they just kiss already? What is, why do they have to spend 3 quarters of the book deciding that they are worthy of being kissed by somebody else and that this person who's clearly hanging around finds them attractive? This is not hard. And I had to stop and say I'm like I I know honey, I know. And there is a presumption sometimes that I don't know if it is a projection that are we worthy of love are we are we desirable does this person who somehow is stuck with us dodging bullets and everything else are they are they actually attracted even though they keep touching us at every uh, it seems like there's a deliberate blindness that people write into some of the heroes and heroines of any genre and how do how do we ease past that to say it's okay to realize that you are worth being loved I know um, that's a lot I to unpack. I struggle with <laughs> with characters being extremely blind and extremely totally naive if it were because as as a reader I find it quite un- it makes me unhappy and angry when I literally have to scream when I end up you know shouting at the screen or the the paperback like you know just talk to each other I mean it's not hard that's like the idiot ball of like who's carrying yeah, the idiot think, ball Yeah <laughs> If you're all definitely um if your entire kind of, plot can be broken I, I like, apart by a frank honest communication one conversation yeah. if that destroys your whole book yeah. then we have a problem 
Also, another famous thing which which worked for many many romances, and people love that stuff. When when suddenly like a brother or sister or a friend shows up and they they hug and it looks like they're kissing, and the other person sees it and then storms off, and as you know they they don't talk and oh you know exactly what you did. Um, and for me, that's not enough. I yeah. I end up with that kind of thing like why 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 do I want you guys to fall in love if you're that stupid? Because a relationship is so much work. And there are so many other conflicts. And if that thing breaks you already, I don't think that marriage or that long-term relationship is going to last. You know? Yeah. Instead of um, thinking, oh, my God, that guy was kissing you. Think, was he being a predator to you? Are you okay? Can we get you to a safe place? Do, you, do yeah, I need to go hit him? I, I, yeah, that's, that's a good. T- yeah, I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. And yeah. maybe that's sort of breaking apart a little bit of the the myth and the and it's starting might be something that we see more because more and more if you look at socially if you see somebody walking down the street and you see a guy menacing a girl there's all kinds of discussion now about how we go up to the girl hey are you okay is this guy bothering you and the guys are starting to come a couple of hey buddy good to see you again give him a big hug just break up the interaction and you know hey hey how are you doing ask the girl does, yep. does she want him there and i'd love to see that in a romance novel i think Actually, it is happening. I see a lot of um, stuff around consent. You know, it used to be sexy when one love interest would kind of press the other one against the wall and force a kiss upon them and they don't want it at first, but then they really want to and their heart is beating so strong and the body says yes and the mind says no. And um, I see that getting replaced a lot with explicit discussions of consent, even in in queer romances. That is a beautiful thing. One partner does no longer overwhelm the other and the other one finds that sexy. However, I also think it is an erotic fantasy to be, you know, for many people, I think it's a number one or number two fantasy to to not give consent, you know, to, to get raped or to get pushed into a into an act. Um, and I think they, romance kind of has to exist between those those tensions. Yeah. They're, they're huge. They're, they're real. It's a real problem. How how do I not get rapey? You know. And if you say, okay, this is a little bit rapey, but I want to point out that it's a little bit rapey. And how do I correct that within the context of the story to maybe make an object moral lesson about how you know the, this is bad and this is better? Yeah. Or some people are really bad at um, you know communicating consent. Or you know, I definitely have a couple of sex scenes where where one character suddenly goes like, "I'm actually not really into this," but you know, because of expectations, you know, it's it's actually easier to not kick up a fuss. And uh, yeah, really, well, response he- to that are, are really interesting because many people say like, "Oh yeah, you know, basically everybody of us has had that kind of sex, and it's interesting to see it on the page like that." Uh, but obviously, that's not romance sex. That's um, you know, just sex, just humans being really bad at giving and communicating consent, as it were. Well, it's it's super hard to remember that the 90s were 30 years ago. So the end of all of those, just kiss her until they say yes, just, you know, hold him until he says, you know, is yeah. it is not really real anymore. And, it's, and it used to be that I remember I was a child in the 80s, and you didn't want to be a cock tease, because that sort of labeled you and that was bad. And for anybody who ever slept with somebody, they didn't want to because they changed their mind, but they're like, crap. I'm here and my clothes are off. If I say no, that's not fair. And yep. <laughs> for all those of us that went through that, like that's no longer real. And I love that it's not real anymore and starting to be reflected in writing too. 
absolutely. It has definitely changed. And all the things that, you know, I mean, as a, as a female-bodied person, all that stuff about like, oh, yeah, you know, that is just how it is for women or, you know, it's just something you have to deal with. And all these things are really getting questioned now. And um, yeah. I, I love seeing all these, you know, the, the counter movement, if, if you like, feminism and actually making people aware of what is going on on the female side. It's, it's no longer getting sidelined as, oh, yeah, it's a minority. It's true. And it's a good thing. All right, I want to turn the topic dial away from the sex scenes into the fantastic <laughs> action scenes and say, I love the research that you do. You have clearly researched and done a lot of writing and study on boxing, on military and war, especially Russian, Russian front, on the history of magic and beliefs. Tell me about some of the research that you've done and how it informs and infects your writing. God, uh, where do I even start? I am literally surrounded by walls of books in my study right now. And I'm just, just the they, stuff. They are. I've looked over their shoulder. It's everywhere. <laughs> and that's just upstairs. I mean, downstairs looks arguably worse. Um, I think the biggest thing I've done was uh, I've, I've literally started studying astrology because one of my side characters is a professional astrologer. And then I got really into it. I have uh, ridiculous amounts about certainly the Second World War because, yeah, as, as, as a German, I thought I was quite well informed, but in many ways I wasn't. And um, at some point, I think I basically did so much research for Nightingale, for example, about the German occupation of Paris from the from the nineteen forties. Um, I could have probably written a, a, a doctoral thesis about it. So that's roughly the the extent where I go to. So I. I try to get um, mem memoirs, uh, diaries of the times. I look at the weapons. I look at YouTube channels um, to get some sounds just right. It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. But if I feel I can move freely in the in the setting and actually gather good details about it, I can kind of transport the reader better. Well, I think you yeah, can. And it's good. as a reader, it's so easy to get thrown out by something that is just dead wrong. You know, yeah. like... Something that I know for sure that I we all have our own little areas of expertise. Like my uncle did his PhD in trains of Europe during World War II. So let me tell you, he may know even more about your German train system than you do because this was his depth. And I had said something once and he's like, you lost me. I'm like, what? I'm like, you said this and this was so dead wrong that I just sort of tuned out of everything else you said. I'm like, I see. And this can really happen to readers too. So it, it makes it better, I think, that you write adventures that do clarify and have real relationships and understanding of, frankly, even the zeitgeist of what it is in this particular area, what is real for this character. Yeah, I mean, just, just for, for one of my Russian characters, um, so he was born in 54, and he would be very much kind of in the, in the final stages of Stalinism and the, the movement of the Soviet Union, kind of the whole relationship about Stalinism. So Stalinism really doesn't happen in the book, but he would be informed by it and shaped by it. And I had Russian readers email me in Russian going like, you know, oh, how do you know all this? And it's amazing. And where are you from and stuff? And I go like, all I did was research, guys. I don't even speak Russian. But I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad I, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I'm glad I sold it to you because that's roughly the level I, I want. I want to be able to have an informed conversation with somebody who actually knows about this stuff. I wonder if it is a common quality of writers that do this. That I'm just going to say, rather than the ability to write or tell stories, 
the ability to remember, to learn things and remember them and adjust them and then be able to apply them. Like this idea of you've looked into it, you've researched it, you, you understand that maybe Stalin was dead, but what he created didn't just die with him right away. It was leached all the way out into the school systems. And so it informed everybody that grew up through the 60s and 70s in small towns across Russia or the Soviet Union at the time, and it formed your character in a certain way. Yeah, that's, there's a certain, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that's very powerful to keep in mind and to remember that as you're writing. How is, how is the change? I mean, global politics have changed dramatically in the last 10 years. How does that change your writing and topics? Yeah, I mean, I have to say 2016 Brexit, um, and then obviously your your orange menace on your side. Um, <laughs> on the first year of Brexit, the EU gave to me. <laughs> yeah, it was very much like, holy shit, you know, it's, um, it's all falling apart. Um, I have to say, I, I got so angry in many ways. All, all the stuff that you kind of take for granted, you think like humanity has... It progressed to a certain point and suddenly, you know, the counter swing happens and, you know, fascism suddenly isn't dead and and people, you know, people like Robert, uh, what's his name, Spencer, you know, all these Polish Nazi boys suddenly show up again. And uh, as historians, you go like, holy shit, you know, I know where this stuff can lead quite quickly. So I got very politicized, well, more, more clearly politicized. I mean, I was always kind of left off center, very humanist, very, I'm very much, very much like liberal democracies generally. Um, and I really like international cooperation. Um, and that was suddenly something that I almost had to defend against some people. Yes. So it was and, interesting to suddenly see all these people, these, um, yeah, let, let me call them people crawl out from under the woodwork and, and suddenly think, um, you know, that their opinion is, um, is okay to say, like, yeah. we need to kill certain people, you know. And, and you have it, I mean, you, you have an easy research across the table. Your, your partner is British, right? <laughs> yep, that too. But also, you know, I obviously live in England and I, and I see what the Tory party has been getting up to and uh, the complete collapse of, of the opposition. Uh, I mean, you guys ma at least managed to, you know, to turn the ship around. But over here, it's uh, it's darkness, dude. But what it do certainly does is, I'm I'm, uh, I'm looking at historical novels more really from a from a current perspective. So what I want to write about next is certainly a book about like how, yeah, what was it like when the Nazis were gone again, or you know, how did the Nazis actually rise as a kind of caveat, like you know, we're, we're closer to the shit than 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 we would have thought ten years ago. Yeah, and certainly my my latest book, uh, Mean Machine, is basically a tirade of of rage and anger against uh, the Tories. You know, the the conservatism that sees our values only as as cogs in a machine, and in the um, value that we can extract from from humans who are less privileged than uh, you know the the rich white boys who made their their fortunes of of slave trades and sugar plantations and. Um, you know, the, the whole scale rape and murder of, of indigenous populations around the world. So, um, yeah, you could say I'm definitely politicized. And I also think it's important because it, art has become one of the few ways how you can now express the, the full, full extent of the, of the anger. I think um, art is also one of the ways that you can reach into anybody's house and start creating other use cases. And show them new ideas and say, okay, 
you you live in your small area and maybe you're only surrounded by white people that are also conservative like you and that you went to the same school and art and books and literature kind of blow through that like a little hand grenade of saying, let me give you another perspective. Let me give you the ability to empathize with a character in a book. And maybe that empathy will be something that you can take with you the next time you meet somebody, then you're like, oh, this really is just like the scenario I just read about. I like to hope yeah. so anyway. No, no, I, I'm not sure who, who said it, but uh, I think somebody coined the, the term empathy machine for, for a novel. Yeah. And I think that's exactly spot on. I can't remember the name. I'm bad with names at this point. Um, but yeah, it does. And I had, you know, readers emailing me saying like, oh, yeah, I never thought that, you know, gay men had the same depth of, of love and understanding and relationship as as we do. But, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And I went like, I'm I'm kind of shocked how, how you got to my books, um, but wow. I'm happy you think so. Wow. And yeah, that would be almost something I'd want to frame because that's really beautiful. Yeah, I, at first it was like, yeah, how, how can you how can you not think that? But yeah, well, <laughs> you know, if, if there's uh, if it helps people understand, I'm I'm all for it. Well, I think it's I think it's especially good. And this was I'm I'm just going to derail it and talk about a similar topic we were talking on another forum where men have had limited ability to express a lot of emotion. The only emotion that men are allowed to express is anger. And it's like somehow people don't even categorize it. You know, that is an emotion also. <laughs> anger and aggression is as much of an emotion as sorrow and mourning and all of these other things. But this one is manly and those are not. And it's created a certain, not just toxic hypermasculinity in some individuals, but at the same time, it has harmed the ability to understand that men grieve and little boys are I have found generally, sorry guys, more emotional than little girls and less emotionally resilient than a lot of little girls because frankly, testosterone makes for a whole lot of emotions in you. And maybe by reading a gay romance will help somebody say, wow, guys feel all of these things and it's okay to talk about them. And that's why I think it's really awesome. Yeah. I mean, certainly in gay romance, this whole male role of, you know, the conqueror, the dominant billionaire CEO who pushes the virgin up against his uh, desk or something, you know, obviously that role is, yes, it is available, but in gay romance, the other role is, is, is certainly different. Personally, I really uh, like to have, you know, if, it, if I write about two, two men specifically to negotiate, you know, what is, what are the roles, what is power, what range of emotion is available to express. And um, certainly the, the topic of how does this character construct masculinity? You know what? What does this character think is acceptable behavior for for himself without feeling less of a man? And um, it's it's a minefield if you look at it. I mean, I'm kind of looking at it from the outside, having been not really socialized as a girl, but kind of expected to perform as a girl. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's yeah, it's interesting. Certainly, I see a lot of damage done to to men, biological cis men uh, that I see based on you know what how much emotion is acceptable and, and how they are they're allowed to express it it's terrible but patriarchy really fucks up men quite badly i can't we say fuck on the show right <laughs> uh, you can we're pg-13 f-bombs are perfectly okay i i love your blog for having advice to new writers there was but there were two that sort of seemed to conflict and so i wanted to bring them up and talk about them and get your elaboration on it one was an issue that said always try to create a persona that is separate from you so that 
you don't have crazed readers or people or let's just say shiny people on a weird cult stalking you and killing you in your sleep. How, I mean, that, that seems like an important thing to think about sometimes for authors. Yeah, I mean, it, it really comes down to, to having a, certainly, if, yeah, most, most authors have a, still have a day job. And um, it, it does, ha- it has happened that the day job and the um, creative expression have conflicted in ways that, for example, I know of one, at least one case where a teacher lost her job because uh, ultimately what uh, the school authorities thought she was doing was to peddle porn to uh, minors, and she wasn't. <laughs> And it wasn't born anyway. It there, had a there, couple explicit. There was another story of a of a teacher that uh, or wrote thriller novels about killing students, and so they were fired oh, because they thought they were going to kill students. Like, you show me a teacher that has not imagined killing their students, and and I don't think you can. But yeah, no, I believe it. Um, yeah, but the kind of the thing is, you know, if if you do make enemies, or you have a reader who really disagrees with you, or a colleague or you know, somebody out there. You know, the internet is full of strange people sometimes. Many of them are wonderful, but some are very, very weird. And uh, so kind of keeping your author name and your real name or your the name on your in your passport uh, separate helps you t- against people like, you know, emailing your, your employer saying, oh, yeah, you have this author. And, you know, they blocked about how they're working, how, how they're writing at work or making notes. And that can lead to some really, really um, unpleasant conversations, I guess, with, with your boss uh, and or HR. For example, I work in financial services and uh, I keep my birth name or my, my legal name, as it were, um, quite separate because it's, 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 it's none of people's business. And I'm not entirely sure how my investment banking, banking colleagues would <laughs> respond to me writing explicit porn. They know me as an editor and as a, as a grammar Nazi, as it were. So, <laughs> but, but I also, I want to say that I want to balance this, you know, on the other side of the term catfishing, that if you've not yeah. looked up like the term catfishing, I'll put a, a sample out there in the notes, but pretending to be something you're not as a writer is important too. Cause I was considering repitching my thriller novels as a guy writing to see if I could get more engagement as a guy than I got as a woman. So what, what are your thoughts on don't be a catfisher at the same time that you're needing to separate your persona? Basically, both genders have pretended to be the other gender forever, to the point where women could, weren't able to publish and they had to take on a male pseudonyms. I think, you know, Georges Sand. It's really common. So, you know, obviously, J.K. Rowling, her, her turfness has published under um, a kind of ambivalent name to be taken seriously by a presumably uh, male readership. That is, I think that is completely acceptable. Where things get really dicey is when certainly in the in the new world where you know you can meet your favorite author or you know even an author you just like on on facebook and interact with them and they might run like you know gofundmes or something and sometimes people obviously have health struggles and others but there have been cases where for example somebody has pretended to be a bisexual men with multiple health conditions raised money for cancer treatments and uh, I got, God knows what else was it uh, there was like a, a transplantation and stuff so it's very serious you know health issues certainly in the American healthcare system where the support from the state or from insurers is not what it really should be we, we know um, we're sorry it, that is kind of the context where these things happen and um 
then you have, uh, you know, obviously then they have a readership and, you know, they're, they're poor, bedraggled, uh, bisexual men um, and they have health issues and they raised thousands and thousands of dollars. And it turns out it was a, was a woman who uh, basically just used the face of her husband as the bisexual toy boy um, and none of it was real. Um, and it was a big scandal in, in my industry, 2017 or 18. And, and these things happen and other people kind of you know, pretend they are, um, you know, wheelchair bound or are part of racial minorities um, who obviously need more exposure. And, and people are, I think, really trying to support, you know, even more marginalized voices. But if it turns out to be a, a white cis middle class woman who, uh, who just uses that to, to pin books, at that point, things get really, really difficult. Yeah, I was going to say, that you, makes perfect sense that way. Don't, yeah. don't try to steal the advantages of an already disenfranchised group. Yeah, yeah, certainly the support that's, that becomes available. I mean, I've seen cases where one of my friends got catfished and basically had an online relationship with um, what they thought was a, a disabled um, wheelchair-using gay male author. And it turns out it was a woman and, um, you know, presents were exchanged and a lot of emotional uh, investment was made, certainly from one side. And uh, my friend was very, very deeply hurt having been betrayed like that. I think the moment you use a different persona for an advantage, specifically when you when you uh, pretend to be somebody who's in an even weaker, even more marginalized position, specifically to sell more books or to run a GoFundMe or something, that is, I think, there's a, an ethical border that has nothing to do with protecting yourself or protecting your, you know, real life job. It's That's difficult because sometimes. It is, but I think that's a good way to, to put it. It's like if, if this is an ethical problem that you would feel bad about standing in front of a thousand fans and confessing, then don't do it. Very much so. And the internet allows us to, you know, to run these scams if, and it happens, but very often these things then, you know, blow up at some point, somebody will put two and two together, um, do a bit of detective work. And, and I have seen author careers blow up from that. You know, so you put in all the work and the books might even be really good, but you're completely, you're completely destroying your social standing, your reputation, even big publisher um, book contracts um, got removed and uh, cancelled because the, the person was a catfisher yeah. and did un unethical things. It's true. On the internet, nobody knows that you're a espresso machine. So yeah, I could be an espresso machine. I would like that. I think <laughs> <laughs> if I had to be an object, what are you working on yeah. now? Tell me about your, your latest project. Um, well, the latest one, I'm kind of currently in the research stage of a really weird Second World War plus paranormal thing where I basically have a apocalyptic battle between the Nazi mages and the Russian sh shamans in the, uh, in the ruins of Stalingrad. So that is very strange <laughs> and really cool. And it's a long-term project. Um, that sounds like fun. Give us a hint of how, how you're constructing it. What's a... Oh, and God. Um, try to be character driven because that's what you do. Yes. Well, that one is actually quite different because the, the almost the world came at the same time as the characters. So it's kind of the question like normally I start with a character and interrogate them, you know, what is your problem and what do you want to achieve? And then I basically try to ruin their day. As in, I, I give them obstacles where they get pushed back by, by various forces and stuff. And ideally, they, they obviously achieve what they want to do. But that is kind of how I build things first around the character. In this case, that is very high concept, very complex uh, world. 
which is yeah usually usually how I how I uh, start these things but it's 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 a couple more years yet there's a lot of people that don't know anything about Siberian shamanism or some of the things so this will be a great read and I look forward to it in the meanwhile I will put links to the podcast and the interesting things that Alex and I have talked about on our website which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com you can also find us on Facebook or Twitter Alex if somebody has a question for you can you will you answer that for them yeah absolutely Fantastic. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer's back- backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our sponsors are Art, Coffee, Chocolate, Coffee, Rum, and Coffee. And we love Jackal Designs. And hey, all of you out there, Thanks for listening.